All right, our passage this morning comes from Galatians chapter 3. We're in verses 15 through 26. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 26. And this morning we're, we're answering the question, how should Christians think about and use the law? How should Christians think about and use the law? And we'll talk a little bit more about that, but we've been talking about the law for uh, the last several weeks. Um, and so now we've come to this section where we need to think about, well, is the law just a negative thing? Or is the law a positive thing? Is this something for us today? How should we think about it? How should we reuse it? Well, how hopefully you have found your place in God's Word. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no, long, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Inter intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that, w that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Bow with me in prayer. God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as the church, for this opportunity to, to worship you this morning through the preached word. And, and as we do, we, we're going to discover that the, the purpose of the law and how the law applies to us today, Lord. And we, we ask that you would help us to understand this. We ask that you would help us to apply it to our lives. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a while back, uh, there was this video that was, that was floating around the internet, and it depicted a dad and his daughter cooking together. As they're cooking in the course of conversation, the daughter asked the dad, Dad, how do you like that new iPad that we got you for your birthday? And before she could even finish, her dad, he, he comes over, uh, he's cut some fresh herbs, and, and he begins to scrape those herbs into, into the pot. And he's like, yeah, you know, I mean, the, it, it's working okay, but I mean, I, I've had better in the past. And just then you realize that, that he's using his new iPad as a cutting board. <laughs> but, but the video, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't stop there. He then goes over to the sink, he washes it off, and then he places it in the dishwasher. And when he turns around, his daughter's got this, like, horrified look on her face. 
Because her dad had no idea that he was using this, you know, $600 plus computer as a cutting board. Now that vignette about, about the dad and his daughter and, and the iPad, it, it's funny, right? But, but, it, it, but it teaches us that our knowledge of something determines not only what we think about it, right, but, but how we use that thing. And that not only holds true of, of gadgets and, and technology and tools, but, but it also holds true of the law. And for the last several messages, we have been talking about the law that is found in God's Word. And, and it is that body of literature, if you remember, that we said that, that tells us how we are to live. Oftentimes we think about the law as that which uh, is delivered in the first five books of the Bible, specifically like Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy. But, but we see the law being delivered all throughout Scripture, all the way into the New Testament. It's the commands that God gives us. It's when God says, this is how you are to live. This is what you're not supposed to do. This is how, what you are supposed to do. This is how you're to think about things. These are commands that God has given. This is the law. But here Paul, in, in Galatians, he's specifically focusing on those, the, that law that, that is in the first five books of the Bible. That, that law that is given to the nation of Israel that, that tells them how they are to live. Um, the law that tells them about the sacrifices and all the things that they would they would do if they sinned against him and while all that that talk about the law might lead you to think then well well, as christians i mean the law is is useless to us and we're we're on this side of the cross right jesus has already come jesus has has already died he's he's fulfilled the law and so what are we then to think about the law well let me just say that the law is not useless to the christian we just need to think about the law and use it in the right way. And so how should Christians think about and use the law? Well, the first thing we have to know is we've, we've got to realize that the law wasn't plan A. The law wasn't plan A. Thinking about the scope of biblical history, it might, it might lead you to think that, that the law that, that is found in the first five books of the Bible was God's first attempt at saving mankind after they had sinned against him in the Garden of Eden and in the promise that he makes there to Adam and Eve. Uh, you might think, well, no, now what comes next is the law. This, this must be God's plan A. This must be his attempt to save mankind. And someone who believes that might say, well, well while the law was a great plan, when you, when you look through biblical history, you see that the law ultimately failed. The people didn't even make it to the reception of the actual tablets that the law was, was written on before they traded God for a golden calf. And and if you remember, you remember that story, reading back, um, Moses, after they have come, in, come out of Egypt in the Exodus event, they're there in the wilderness, they're, they're at, at the Mount Sinai, and, and he goes up on the mountain to receive the law from God. And he tells the people this is what he's going to be doing. And Moses uh, is gone for a while. He's gone for like 40 days. And in the course of time, the po- people believe, well, well, Moses has just, he just left us. He's, he's up and gone. He hasn't come back for a while. Um, they've forgotten about the power of God as, as he has delivered all of these plagues on the nation of Israel, I mean, on the nation of Egypt. And he has, he has brought the nation out of Egypt to worship him in the wilderness, just as he, he said that he would do. 
The God who, who rescued them by parting the Red Sea, they, they've forgotten about him. The, the presence of God that has come on the mountain there before them with, with great clouds and thunder and lightning and, and the people became so afraid they didn't want to go up the mountain. They, they sent Moses up the mountain on their behalf. These people have forgotten all about that. And now they've sought something else to worship. They come to Aaron, who's supposed to be the high priest, and ask him, man, we, we need something to worship, something to, to, some God that we can bow before. And so he provides them with a golden calf. Because the people rejected God and his law at the outset, even after receiving the law, they, they couldn't keep it. Some might believe that God was left with no other choice but to come up with a plan B. And that plan involves sending a Savior Jesus Christ. And while some may think that is what happened, it's not. Jesus has been and Jesus will always be plan A. And there will always be just a plan A. Even before the world was created, even before Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, before the beginning of creation, Jesus was God's plan to save the world. And we know that to be true because in Ephesians chapter 1, Verses 4 through 5, we read this. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, before the world was ever even created, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through, not the law, but through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Ephesians 1 reveals that the Father and the Son, they, they had a plan before the world ever began. Then that plan involves salvation through Jesus, not through the law. Now Peter, one of Paul's contemporaries, Paul's the one who wrote the, the book of Ephesians. He's also the one who wrote the book of Galatians that we're studying here. P Peter, in one of his letters, he also reveals that Jesus was plan A rather than plan B. In 1 Peter 1, 20, we read this. He, speaking of Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. And there are more scriptures we can look at, but, but what, you, what you see here is that, that Jesus has always been God's plan A. He has never been plan B. Back in the book of Galatians, Paul he really drives the point home that Jesus is plan A instead of the law by using a covenant as an example. And starting in verse 15, he says this, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, Paul's language sometimes can be a little bit, little bit confusing, but, but the point is this. Once the covenant has been ratified or once the covenant has been made official, once it has been signed, it is binding. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. Nothing is going to, to break it. And we're happy that things work this way, right? I mean, especially when it comes to buying a high ticket item like a car or 
your home. You agree to the price with, with the seller. You, you draw up what we, what we would call a, a contract, which is slightly different than a covenant, but for our purposes here, we draw up a contract. And, and once you both sign it, the, the seller can't come back to you later and say, you know that car that you bought for me for, for $30,000, that house you bought for $300,000? Um, I've had some expenses come up, and I'm going to need you to pay me $50,000 more for that car or for that home. You know, it doesn't work that way. Once the contract has been ratified, once it has been made official, that contract is binding. And the law, which Paul tells us came 430 years after God had made this covenant with Abraham, did not annul his previous covenant with Abraham or the promise that is associated with that covenant to bring about a Messiah through his line. God promised Abraham to send Christ through his family line. And the introduction of the law into biblical history did not annul that promise. It did not change the plan that God had made. And God has, has always been true to his promise to send this Savior. And we know that because God hasn't ceased to be God, which is what would happen if God just reversed course with this covenant that God made with Abraham. Let me, let me show you what I mean here. In Genesis 15 recounts the episode where God made a covenant with Abraham. And now we don't have time to read all through Genesis 15, but let me paraphrase. There we learn that, that God told Abraham, he said, look, I want for you, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I want for you to bring a heifer, I want for you to bring a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And, and once he brought them, he was instructed to cut them right down the middle, cut them in half and lay each side over against the other. So there's this pathway in between the two. And this was done to represent what would happen if someone broke that covenant. I mean, right? I mean, imagine that that happens when you go down to, you know, buy yourself a car and you, you know, walk through this deal with, with the car dealer, right? We don't do that. We just sign our name on, on the dotted line. And, you know, we don't, we're not in danger of being cut in two if we, you know, go have to have that car repossessed or something like that, right? They just, they just get their car back. We don't get sliced in two, but this is what would happen back then. So he's saying, by cutting these two animals in half, uh, if I don't fulfill my portion of the covenant, let what has happened to these animals happen also to me. Now, this covenant was ratified that evening. The covenant wasn't ratified, usually it would be ratified by, by both parties walking through. You know, to say, hey, this will happen to me and this, this will happen to me as well. Um, if I don't fulfill this covenant that I have made with you. But that night as Abraham, asleep comes over him and, and he sees, uh, whether it be a, a dream or a vision or whatnot, uh, God going through those animals. And God alone going through those animals in the form of a burning torch. In doing so, God is saying, look, I am going to bring about my promises no matter what. In other words, he's making this unconditional covenant with Abraham that night to his people. A covenant he, he couldn't break or God would cease to be God because he would be cut in two like these animals. He, he, would, have, he would have lied to Abraham as well and, and that would have damaged his character and he would no longer be this perfect and holy God. 
But that hasn't happened, right? Because God hasn't changed. God hasn't changed from being this perfect and holy God to, to a God who sometimes tells the truth, but sometimes lies and goes back on his promises that he has made. That, that has not occurred. And so we see that, that God's plan has not changed. God's plan has always been to save us through grace that comes in Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, not by the law. Now, if that's the case, if the law doesn't save us, why was the law given? Well, we learn that the law was added because of sin. The law was added because of sin. In verse 19, Paul asks and answers his own question, a question many in Galatia had, a question that, that many of you probably have. Why then the law? Now, here's what God's Word says about that. It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The law was added because of sin. We are sinful human beings. In order to help us understand that about ourselves and, and to show us just how sinful we are, just how much we need a Savior, we are given the law. And as we compare our actions, our, our daily actions, our momentary actions to, to what the law says, we should see that we cannot keep the law. We should see that, that we really fail at keeping the law a lot. Uh, not just sometimes, not just like once a week or once a month, like every day we fail at keeping the law. The law comes because it points out how sinful we really are. The law shows that about us. But that's not all the law does. Continuing in verse 21, Paul tackles another question. Doing so, he tells us another purpose of the law. He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And look what he says. Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would not indeed be by the law. Then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Excuse me. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so we see here then the law isn't contrary to the promises of God. Instead, the law coincides with the promises of God because it points to God's promise. It points to Christ. It points to a Savior. It not only does that by revealing our sin, but also by showing, look, you cannot save yourself. In order to save yourself, you must be perfect. But none of us are perfect. We have all rebelled against God. And so the law reveals our rebellion, and in doing so, it points to our need for a Savior. But we're not done. Starting in verse 23, Paul says this, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Again, we see that the law it does not annul the covenant that God made with Abraham. That covenant that God made with Abraham still stands today. Instead, the law serves as this intermediary until Christ could come on the scene. It, it held us captive. It imprisoned us. But we weren't left to wallow in this prison. Instead, we were placed underneath the care of a guardian, he says here. Now, in, in Paul's day, guardians or, or tutors, your Bibles may use the word tutor, 
uh, were employed by families whose children were between the ages of 6 and you know, 12 or, or 13. And it was the guardian's job then to teach that child how to become a productive and moral citizen, a productive and moral member of that particular society in which they were living in, as well as they were to guard those from the community uh, who might try to, to hurt them, who might try to, to use them and to exploit them or take advantage of them. And the idea of the law acting as our guardian reveals another purpose of the law, and that is the law was given to teach us how we should live as God's people. You see, God doesn't just send us out on our own and He says, hey, look, I, I want you to go and I want you to please me. I'm not going to tell you how to please me, but, but I want you to figure it out on your own. No, God doesn't do that. God gives us His Word. That's why it's important if we, are, if we call ourselves believers, if we call ourselves Christians, uh, that we be readers of His Word, that we are daily going to His Word, that we are learning more about God, we are learning more about ourselves, more about the world in which we live. We are investing our time in His Word. If you don't ever invest your time in His Word, well then, you know, how, how can you know how God wants you to live? How can you know who this God is? How, how can you know what, what it is that you're basing your salvation on? You can't. And so you have to spend time in His Word. It is His Word that instructs us. It's His Word that tells us how we are to please Him, how we are to be productive members of society, how we are to interact with and, and live around those who are around us or live with those who are around us. He does that through the law. The law teaches us how to live as God's people. And the law teaches us this in both a positive way and, and a negative way. It's positive in that it tells us this is how you are to live. These are the things that you should do. This is how you should think about those people around you. How you should think about orphans and widows and, and immigrants and all kinds of different people. It tells you how you're to think about that. It's how do you live with your neighbor? But then it's also negative in a sense that, that it, it restrains us. Right? It restrains us. I mean, think about our own society, the society in which we live. We have laws. We have laws for our city and for our state. We have national laws as, as well. These laws, they, they tell us how we are to live, but then they also restrain us. They, they restrain our behavior. If you go out and you, you kill someone, well, you're, you're going to go to jail. Uh, you, you might possibly face you know, being put to death yourself. And, and knowing that that's going to take place, that, that's a restraint that is put on us. If there were no restraints that were put on us, then we would just live however it is that we want, and the society in which we live would just be crazy. It would be, you know, just, just out of control. And, and we have seen some examples of this, particularly over the summer in, in 2020. You had all of these different autonomous zones that were popping up in, in different parts of the country. And their idea was that, hey, we can live free from any sort of policing. We can live free from any sort of laws. We can kind of just love on one another. And that sounds great, right? Like this utopia society in which we can live on. We're going to share everything with one another and everybody's going to be taken care of. But that's not what happened, is it? No, I mean, eventually, shortly afterwards, you get these people who, who rose to power um, in that autonomous zone that's supposed to be about love and everybody's equal. You get these people who rose to power 
And they began exploiting other people. People began getting beat up. Some people were even murdered and killed in these zones where it's supposed to be this, this place of freedom. You see, we need law to restrain us. The Bible tells us that. And our own experiences tell us that. And so we see then the purpose of the law is to teach us what sin is, to show us just how sinful we are, as well as its purpose is to point us to a Savior, and it's to teach us how we are to live and interact with God and with one another. And that's why the law was given. And now as a Christian, you might be thinking, okay, well, that's great. Uh, the law has, has served its purpose. Um, Christ has come. He's fulfilled the law. I mean, why do we need the law now? What is it doing for me today? You know, in 2021... 2,000-something years after Christ has come and sacrificed Himself for us. This is just an Old Testament thing, right? Uh, we're, we're a New Testament church. We don't need the law. Well, let me just say the law is still valuable for the Christian. It's still valuable for the Christian. It's valuable in the same way that it was for those who came before Christ. I say that because the purpose of the law doesn't change once we become a believer, its purpose remains the same, but, but how we interact with the law and how we use the law is what changes. And so first we see that the law is valuable because, well, the law still tells us how we should live. That hasn't changed. The law still tells us what pleases God and what doesn't please God. It still tells us how we are to interact with those that, that are around us. It still reveals sin to us. The law still restrains us. The law doesn't change in those ways. All of those things are the same. Instead, what changes is our willingness to listen to and allow the law to actually guide us. We talked about the idea of the law pointing out our sin, pointing out our rebellion. Well, well when, we, when we realize that Jesus, uh, when we come to the realization or when we come to salvation, what we're doing is we're realizing that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior and that we need a Lord and a Savior besides ourselves. And besides whatever it is this world can offer us. We're saying, look, I'm sinful. The law has pointed us to that sin. The law, law has told us that we are sinful people. And when we come to Christ, we are recognizing that. We are admitting that. And we are believing and confessing that Jesus is, yes, indeed, the Lord and the Savior of my life. And our desires are our will for God and, and His things change. And so instead of seeing the law as this old antiquated deal that's just in this old antiquated book that we just need to cast off and we need to rebel against because that's what we're doing before we come to Christ. We are rebelling against God's way of doing things. We desire the law. We delight in the law as the psalmist said. It becomes a, a lamp to our feet. It becomes a, a guide to us. And for the first time in our lives, we actually desire to follow God's law. We, we want to know what God says about us and how we are to live. And we are willing to follow that. The law's purpose doesn't change when we become a believer. The way we interact with it does. We no longer despise it. But we delight in it. And so, do you? Good question to ask yourself to see if you are a, a follower of Jesus. Not just in name, but, 
but, but really a follower of Jesus, that your, that your heart has really changed, your will and your desires for God has really changed, is to say, do I despise God's law? Do I just want to cast that off? Or do I always find myself rebelling against it? Or do I delight in God's law? Do I want to know what God's law says and how it, how, how it directs me to live? Do you, do you reject it? You want nothing to do with it? Or do you allow it to guide your life? True believers delight in the law and they allow the law to be a light to their path. And so we see that the law is still valuable to the Christian because it still tells us how we are to live. And we will desire to know what God says as a believer. How we interact with the law is what's changing here. Second, the law is valuable because it still points us to our need for a Savior. You see, where our relationship with God may be repaired, the fact that we need Jesus as our Savior has not changed. Salvation doesn't wipe the slate clean. It doesn't give us the power to obey the law perfectly so that we are both saved by grace and by works. No, that's not, that's not what takes place. No, we are, we are sinners. We sin all the time. This is why we have what, what we call the process of sanctification or, be, or becoming sanctified, becoming more and more holy, becoming more and more like Christ. And this is a process. It takes place over a period of time. It's a process that will never see its completion in this world. We will never become sinless. We will always be sinners who sin against God, who break God's law who break God's rules and the gospel though the gospel should remind us of that the gospel should remind us of our sinfulness and our need of a savior it should constantly remind us though of God's grace and his love which should then spur us on to obedience to a desire to want to to please God not to earn our salvation but out of gratitude for what God has done for us through Christ. See, grace and love that, that is poured out on us despite our sins. We, we, when we think about the law and, and it points out how sinful we really are, we should then be driven back to the cross, driven back to God's grace and driven back to God's mercy and His continued promise to us even though we continue to sin against Him. And that should lead to our obedience. That should also lead to our worship. See, if, if you want to truly worship God, which is not just what we do here uh, on Sunday mornings for an hour, um, it is what you should be doing every single day, but this is a form of worship that we do here, right? We, we come and, and we learn about who God is and we sing praises to Him based on His promises and what He has done for us. If we want to learn about what true worship is, then we, we go to God's Word. And we think about the gospel. And we should be motivated then to give our lives to Him. To worship Him 24-7. We should be motivated to come to church on, on Sundays and to sing praises to Him. Because we're praising Him for the gospel. We're praising Him for what Jesus has done for us. And so we see here that the law is still valuable. It, it motivates us to obedience. It motivates us to worship. Is it reminds us of God's grace and love. And that should drive us to obedience and worship. 
when we realize and meditate on the depths of God's love and grace for us despite our sin, we are driven back to the cross. And all this means is that the law is still valuable to the Christian. It's not something that we should give up on. It's not something that we should move on from. It's not something that we should forget about. We should still interact with it just in a different way. Instead of, uh, instead of it beating us down, the law should, should lift us up. It should give us meaning and, and purpose in life. It, it should tell us how we are to live in God's good kingdom. It tells us how we should treat one another as well as it restrains us. It points us to God's grace and love, which should drive obedience and worship in us. And so Christian, don't, don't forsake the law. Allow the law to have an impact on your life. Delight in it as the psalmist does. Worship God as you reflect on the law and the gospel to which it points. And this is how you can respond this morning. If you're a believer, you can respond by, by worshiping God, by allowing the law to point you to the gospel, point you to the cross that you see here we have on stage. The reminder that we saw through the baptism clip. That God has come to save us and to redeem us. Allow the law to point you to that and worship God. And if you aren't a believer, you can respond in the same way. You can turn to God in worship by allowing God's law, His Word, to point out your sin, to point out your need for a Savior. And once it has done that, and you can turn to Christ. You can believe in Him as your Lord and Savior. You can repent of your sins. And this morning, you can do that. The, the writer of Hebrews says, today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next month. Today. Today you have been confronted with the gospel message. Today you've been confronted with the truth of your sin and the inability to save yourself. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you can repent of your sins and turn to Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. In a moment, Scott's going to come after I pray and he's going to lead us in a time of, of worship through song. And it's an opportunity for us to respond to worship as believers. And if you're not a believer, and you would admit that. But you would say, I want to be a believer now. It's an opportunity for you to, to make a poet profession of faith. To come forward as we are singing and to tell everyone here that I have surrendered my life to Christ. And if you're not comfortable doing that this morning, I'd be, be happy to get together with you if you have, still have questions. Ryan and I will we'll be out back. And we'd be happy to talk with you this morning or be happy to set a meeting with you and gather together for coffee or lunch or, or whatever it might be uh, this coming week. But today is the day of salvation. If the Lord is working in your life, if the Lord is, is calling you, today is the day to answer that call. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank You for this Word. We thank You for the law. We thank You, God, that it is still purposeful for us today. It still has a place in our lives. God, we thank You for Christ. We thank You for the gospel that the law points to. We thank you for the love and the grace and the mercy that you have showered upon us in the cross. And God, we ask that you would help us to be people who worship you. That you would allow us, Lord, to be people who desire your word, who delight in your word, who delight in your law. 
And God, if there's anyone here today who's in the building or, or, or worshiping online with us, Lord, ask that you would work in their life, that you would help them to see that they are sinners in need of a Savior, that they would respond this morning to the call that you have placed upon their life. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.